wasn't doing well. The church here in this entire chapter, the first, uh, first, this entire book of 1 Corinthians is struggling with several issues that Paul has to come in and correct. They're divided over the topics of man worshiping. It goes, some worship Paul, some worship, worship Peter, some worship Apollos. They have split down the middle on certain teachers they are following. There's people fighting over whether or not they have a license to sin. Others are dealing with immoral practices and saying that they are free to do so because they are free in Christ. And the problem we come across here in our chapter is over regular practices going on in the local church. You see, in this time where the Bible was written, in this time where 1 Corinthians 13 is written, the church is using spiritual gifts given to them by the Holy Spirit. We call these sign gifts. These gifts include prophecy, which is divine, it's divine things from God, inspiration. Again, that's it's divine sayings from God and tongues. It's, tongues was a gift given by the Holy Spirit where they could, they could converse with many people. We're not sure if that meant a person could talk in every language or if they talked in their own language and everyone under, heard, under, understood them in their own. But God gave these gifts to propagate the gospel in a quicker way than anyone could do on their own. And instead of these things being focused on God and his ability, they instead became focused on, on the man doing them and they became confusing within the church. Chapter 12, the previous chapter, gives a discourse of the body of Christ and how the gifts of every member are important and we should never devalue someone because of it. Paul uses that illustration of the body and says some are the hands, some are the eyes, some are the, some are the foot and some are the arm. And he goes through this idea that every aspect of the body is important and has a function. And the same is true of the church today. Every person in the church has a very vital part of the church body. And here's the thing, when you're not here, it's like we're almost amputated. That's the idea. And he goes into chapter 3, and like we said, this is called the, the love chapter. And verse 31 of chapter 12 kind of starts it off, and it says, But covet, earn, covet earnestly the best gifts. He's talking to them, you're coveting earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. So as we delve into this chapter, this love chapter, and we learn how to behave as a Christian with that proper motivation of love. Now, in ancient Greek, in the language that the Bible was written in, there are three words for love. The first one is eros. It's a physical love. It's a very me-centered type of love. We actually never see this word in the Bible, but it's where we get our English word erotic from. Get the idea. It's not a, it's not a very helpful type of love. The second one is philia or philia. This is a communal love. We often call it brotherly love. Hence, the city of brotherly love is Philadelphia, which is not very loving right now. But you see, Philadelphia is a we-centered type love. It's no longer me-centered. It's, it's a communal love. It's I'm concerned with the group. And we see this word used 25 different times within Scripture. And the word we're going to look at today, and in, in the King James Bible that I'm going to preach from, we use the word charity. It can be translated as love, and it's the word agape. Agape is a type of love that has a much deeper meaning than brotherly love. It is a self-sacrificial type of love. It is an unconditional love that isn't earned. It's a Christ-centered love. 
So we see a me-centered love, we see a we-centered love, and now we see a Christ-centered love. We rarely see this type of love where the power of Christ isn't motivating or influencing it, and we see it used over 250 times in our New Testament. So this chapter makes a dramatic shift. If you were to read the book of 1 Corinthians, you would find Paul lecturing and being fairly direct on how he's approaching them. And he makes a, almost this poetic shift in his writing. And he has a different cadence to now how he writes. It is here that Paul really gives a clear statement of your motivation matters. He shifts from teaching to motivating them in a certain direction. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to read through it one more one time, and then we're going to get started. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I can remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Let's pray and we'll get started. Father, we thank you so much, Lord. We thank you for bringing us out today and providing a house for us to worship in. Thank you for providing safety this week for everyone. Lord, we think of the, the 10 that are getting baptized today. I pray that you'd be with them. And Lord, this is a huge step in their Christian walk. This is a public statement of saying, God, I'm going to follow you. And Lord, we, we thank you for that commitment. Lord, and as we look at what love is, and we look at this topic in 1 Corinthians 13, I pray that you just open everyone's heart to what your word has to say. Guide my words, guide my tongue. It's in your name we pray, amen. So in this chapter, as we dissect it, we're going to see three things or three aspects of what love is. Well, number one, as we see in these first three verses, is love is essential. Love is essential. Look what it says. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. That means a man could speak, Paul is saying, a man could speak every language fluently and eloquently. He could be the most beautiful orator you've ever heard and even sound like an angel. But he continues, and have not charity, have not agape, have not love. Paul's saying that you could do that. You could be the best speaker. You could be this person who's influential. But if you do not have that Christ-centered love, he goes on to say you are as a sounding brass. It can also be translated as a banging gong. Or a tinkling symbol. Frankly, you can be the best orator, but without the proper motivation of love, you are nothing more than a nuisance, a distraction. You're annoying. You're a loud sound. And it has this application of what we say doesn't matter if we don't have the right motivation. What you say on a daily basis does not matter if you do not have the proper motivation. I can come up to you and say, let me, let me pick on Guy for a second. I've known Guy for a long time. I can go up to Guy one day out of, out of nowhere and just start correcting him on his behavior. Guy, you're doing this, you're grouchy, you're mean, you're hard to deal with. But if I'm not coming from a point of view of love, Guy's going to tell me to go pound sand. You see, what we say doesn't matter if we don't have the proper motivation. 
You as parents know this well. <laughs> I mean, you guys have ever yelled at your kids because they were doing something that would get them hurt. Your motivation was because, hey, I love you. I'm going to help you. Some days, I, as a kid, that did never, it, it rarely felt like mom and dad loved me. But looking back, that was the motivation. So Paul says here, what we say doesn't matter if we don't have the right motivation. Paul is literally saying, if, you, if what you say doesn't show the love of Christ, it's nothing more than a banging gong or a tinkling bell. It's nothing more than a noise in the background. I think of when we go to camp. Go to camp in June, normally. This last June, we took all your kids and we all got sick. All teens would remember it. It was a mess. It was like camp plague. But we always take Dwight Smith with us. Dwight's the evangelist that we take, and he goes and he speaks with the kids. And Wes and Laura have been to a lot more camps than I have, but we know this, that when a speaker comes into a camp, they are given a very difficult task of identifying with teenagers and confronting them on problems in their life. And there are few people that are as talented at this as Dwight Smith. Here's how, he, here's how I know. When we go to camp, we set up Monday night, and we might play some games at night, and Dwight will get to preach. But what the kids notice about Dwight, and I think the teens would confirm this on me, is that Dwight is around them all the time. Dwight plays every game. Dwight might instigate a little bit of competitive talk, for lack of a better term. But Dwight is around the kids all the time. Here's why. He shows them he cares. Because if Dwight can go and play, we played indoor hockey that Charlene vetoed because people got hurt. We played indoor hockey that Dwight actually came up with the game. Here's the thing. Dwight can go and play this game with these kids for a few hours. And you might think, well, that's kind of a waste of his time, right? No, because that night he can, sit, he can stand there, open the Bible, and confront a teenager on what they're doing and why it's wrong. And that child knows out of the spirit of love that he has for me, he wants the best for me. It's the same way with us. If you are not helping someone or correcting someone or helping someone get better out of the spirit of love, you are nothing more than a loud noise. Our motivation matters, but look at, look at verse 2. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. Paul here is... Paul's intelligent in how he writes because he's not putting it on them. He's saying, hey, I, if I did this, if I did this, he's not trying to pin this on them. He's saying, hey, this is something I'm struggling with. If I had the gift of prophecy, Paul had the gift of receiving words from God. He could see what God wanted and he could act on it. If I could understand all mysteries, Paul could understand the greatest unrevealed truths of God. All knowledge. He was divinely imparted knowledge from God. And if I have all faith so that I can remove mountains. He could even have this heroic faith that could move mountains. But I don't have love. I am, what's that next word he says? Nothing. 
I am nothing. Frankly, if we had someone come in and they, they had all these gifts, we would automatically put them on a pedestal. We would automatically say, that person's someone to be followed. But Paul says, hey, despite these gifts that I might have, if I don't have love in how I do it or why I do it, I value nothing. I am valued as nothing. I am of no use to anyone. It's pretty strong language to say that if you know without, if, if, if you give what you know without practicing love, it is pointless. So that's the, that's the statement. What we say doesn't matter, but what we know doesn't matter if we don't have that right motivation. We are given great and tremendous knowledge through the Bible and what God has done for us. But even that is of little to no value when we do not practice love as a motivation. Had a teacher always say this. He said it all the time. And as a student, I hated it. I was like, okay, Dr. R is going to say this. Now, Dr. R out at West Coast is about six foot seven. He's been in education his entire career. He's a large man. He's extremely well-spoken. And he's, you meet him and he's, I'm Mark Rasmussen. He always shakes hands like this. You always feel like really little. But he always used to say something in every class. He'd always say this, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. You know, we have a pastor who cares deeply. <laughs> Be around him for a day. You'll see he cares deeply. Growing up in a pastor's home under Pastor Monday, growing up as a son, I saw him up at night late with people. I saw him counseling people left and right. He cares because you know why? Because he loves. Because he wants the best for people. Because he wants them to achieve their full potential. And Paul's saying here, hey, look, it doesn't matter what I know or what I tell you. If I don't do it with the proper motivation, it is pointless. But we also see what we say doesn't matter, what we know doesn't matter, but also what we do doesn't matter without that right motivation. Look at verse 3. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. It profiteth me nothing. The Corinthians must have been good at giving eloquent speeches and they must have becoming must becoming must be prideful in their knowledge and the gifts and even now attempted benevolent acts for the sake of public acknowledgement. They're being confronted because motives matter to God. He says, I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, or I give my body to be burned. It profiteth me nothing if I don't have love. Even these valiant acts are of no value to someone when they are not done in the spirit of love, in that Christ-centered agape love for the body of Christ. You see, God will see through any motivation and see what we actually are, and he'll answer for what we actually are, not for what we do. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. Take your Bibles just a few pages over Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5 tells an interesting story. Acts chapter 5 and verse 1 says this, But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession 
and kept back part of the price. His wife, also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let me unpack that for a second. Ananias and Sapphira are members of this church, and they sell a piece of property, and they sell it for X amount of dollars, but they come in and they tell them they sold it for this amount of money. They wanted to hold on to some of that money, and they wanted to give a certain amount. Was anything wrong with them keeping back some of that money? Yes or no? Not at all. Not at all. There is nothing wrong with them keeping back part of it. But what they did that was wrong was they lied about their motivation. They came in and they said, hey, look, we sold our money for X amount of dollars and here it is. But look what Paul says. Look at verse 3, or Peter. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Notice how he said that part of the price, not part of what you gave. Part of the price of the land. Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost, and great fear came upon all them that heard these things. If you read through the rest of that chapter, the next few verses, you see Sapphira comes in and Peter confronts her with the same thing and she lies as well. And he says, the, the men who buried your husband are at the door to bury you. You see, God takes our motivations very, very seriously. Let me put it practically for you. We see the story of the widow giving the little bit of money and how she was blessed. You can come into this church and say, hey, I'm physically unable to do a whole lot. I work, I work 60, 60, 70 plus hours a week. I've got all these other responsibilities. The only thing I can do to serve the church is to pray. Guess what? That's all God wants. God's not expecting you to do what the next person does. God is expecting you to do what you know you need to do. But if you come in and say, man, I, I'm, I'm busy, I'm swamped, I've got this responsibility, I've got this responsibility, because you might be scared of being placed in the nursery. That's a t I, I don't like the nursery, so I'm, I'm kind of with you all on it a little bit. But if we start making excuses, God sees through those excuses. Now, I'm not saying you have to come to us and say, okay, I'll work in the nursery. I'm not saying that at all. Because frankly, we don't want everyone working in the nursery. It takes a certain type of people to work in the nursery. I am not that type of people. I don't have the patience. I don't have the, I can't handle crying for that long. Or else I'm going to start crying. And then it gets really awkward for that child. You see, our motivation matters because love is essential in what we do. In what we say, what we know, and what we do, it's essential but also, but number two, love is effective. Love is essential, but love is effective. Look what it says in verse four. Oh, I got to turn back. I've done it. Look, looked at verse four, and it wasn't what I was had. Verse four: Charity suffereth long and is kind. 
Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. We can probably agree now that love is a good motive to have, but what does it look like in action? What's the practical side of love? The first three verses take care of having the right motivation, we see. It's, it doesn't matter what you say, do, or think, or, or know. But the next four verses take care of the practical side of things, of what does a loving person do now? What sort of actions would a person who wants to demonstrate and showcase this agape, Christ-centered love do? Well, number one, letter A, you could say, a loving person kindly tolerates difficult people. Look what it says in verse 4. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Suffereth long, or we could say as long-suffering, is a patient endurance under provocation. It's a patient endurance under provocation. Kindness, as it says here, is active goodness. It's going forth in the interest of others. These two are working in tandem together. Patience endures, patient endurance mixed with active goodness. Now let's face it. Some people are difficult to deal with for a little bit. I think we all can agree. There are some people in our lives that are difficult to deal with all the time. They can be negative, they can be pushy, can be egotistical, and sometimes just plain, I don't know if this is a word, but dad always used it, they can be just plain heathenistic. I don't know if that's a word. If it is, way to go. If not, I'm sorry. But people can be difficult, yes or no? Yes. Guess what? We don't answer for their being difficult. You answer for your reaction to their provocation of you. That's difficult to do, right? A Christ-centered person endures difficult people. But not only endures, it kindly endures. It tolerates. How many of you, how many of you guys know when someone starts speaking, you start like reciting movie quotes or your to-do list in your head while they're speaking? You're just like, Lord, get this out of the way. That's tolerating, but I wouldn't quite call that kindly tolerating. You see, God commands us to lovingly and kindly tolerate someone. 2 Peter 3.9, this is a perfect, perfect example. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Frankly, people are difficult, but imagine how we are to God on a daily basis. Look, I live alone, and I know that I'm difficult to live with some days. <laughs> I just am. I walked in the house the other day, and it's like, whoever lives here is a slob. And I started thinking, oh, it's me. Imagine how we are to God. A God whose standard is a lot higher than ours. A God whose whose standard for holiness and acceptance is a lot higher than ours, but a person who is showcasing that Christ-centered love will be patient and kind even when provoked, but let her be a loving person has realistic views of themselves. 
Look what it says. Charity envieth not. That means it's pleased when others are, should be honored and exalted. Charity vaunteth not itself. It doesn't parade itself around or show itself off. Charity is not puffed up. It knows that any good thing in themselves comes straight from God. A loving person knows that we are blessed even when others are getting the attention. A loving person does not parade their piety or their sacrifices around. A loving person recognizes that it is only by God that we are where we are today. Romans 12, 3, For I say through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, realistically, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Frankly, a loving person has realistic views of themselves. You know what that means? It's probably going to be hard to swallow some days. Realize, man, I'm not all I cracked up to be. Or how about this? I'm not all I tell people I think I am. That's a difficult thing to get to. When I was in, when I was in school, we had a speaker in chapel come in, and he's, he starts talking about pride, and he starts talking about what he had done, and he, he brings out several pieces of paper, and he uses them to symbolize the degrees he has. He said, I got my associates right out of, he said, I graduated high school almost with my associates done. So then I got my bachelor's, and he said, then I got my master's, and then I got another master's, then I got my Ph.D., he has all these degrees. The guy has a pedigree that's phenomenal. But up there with these pieces of paper, he tears them in half. He said, frankly, it doesn't matter. The same goes with us. Now, God wants us to do our best. God wants us to give our all at whatever we're doing, whether that's work, school, sports, family, whatever it is. Give your all. But don't make that your identity. Don't make that your identity. A loving person has realistic views of themselves. A loving person is concerned with others more than themselves. Look at verse 5. Doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own. Unseemly means rudely, ugly. Means it's not considerate, it's, it's rude. Seeketh not her own. That's pretty, that's pretty easy to understand. It's not selfishly looking to please itself. It's looking to help others. A loving person is aware of the people around them. They're considerate on how they behave, talk, or carry themselves. They're not selfishly pursuing their own interests all the time. Philippians 2 verse 3, Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. You see this agape love is, it's not self-centered, it's self-sacrificial. It's looking for what's better for the people around us. Look, husbands and wives, you guys would have a great marriage. You guys would have a much better marriage if you valued the other person's needs over yours. And vice versa. That's why God created marriage, was for you to rely on that person. You know, work would go a lot smoother. You might get along with a whole lot of people if you valued what your coworkers needed over what you needed. <laughs> this goes against everything in the self-love movement. But frankly, self-love is not in the Bible. 
Because God says, deny yourself and take up your cross. So a loving person is concerned about others more than themselves. A loving person does not allow emotions to rule their lives. It's not easily provoked. It thinketh no evil. Love endures slights and insults. It endures the comments of others. It doesn't contemplate getting even. It doesn't assign motives or suspect someone unprovoked. Emotions are a tricky thing. I think we all can probably agree. We're given a plethora of them as a child, and then we struggle our entire existence to keep them under control. Emotions are not bad, but acting out on them in an unbiblical way is. We did a youth rally Friday night, and there's the behavior train or something, behavior train. And when you put an emotion before your brain, whatever happens at the end is a mess. We went on a train yesterday. It was a great train. It was fun. It was beautiful. But if they had put a cart in front of the caboose or in front of the engine, it probably wouldn't have worked as effectively as we would have liked it to. The same goes for us. Our emotions cannot dictate our actions because when they do, we're acting emotionally and we're frankly acting out of the spirit of God. So a loving person has rule over their emotions. A loving person has loving person values truth over conformity. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. It doesn't take pleasure in the unrighteousness of the world. It doesn't condone or accept sin as something that is good. It instead takes pleasure in the truth of God's word, in the standards that God has set, in the commands that he has in place. This is hard to deal with some days because God has set a standard over this world that we have to meet. There are things that are right and there are things that are wrong and God doesn't change on them. You see, the tactic of the devil is to say, hath God actually said? He said it in the garden and he says it today. Did God really say that? The world says it today. Hey, we don't think the Bible actually says that. That wasn't written until much, much later. That was written by some heretic. That was added in. But the Bible says stuff that's clear. And we've got to rely on the truth of God's word, not on what the world condones. A loving person values truth over conformity. A loving person looks for the best in people. Look at verse 7. Beareth all things. It endures or conceals the faults of others. It doesn't needlessly bring up the failures of others. It believeth all things. It looks for the best about others. It doesn't jump to conclusions. It hopeth all things. It desires that things work out for the best. It isn't a doomsday personality. It endureth all things. Love keeps going even when it's hard or a person can be hard. People let us down all the time. People disappoint us constantly. But it is not a loving demeanor to write them off. It's not a loving demeanor to say, you know what, they're hopeless. We've got some difficult kids in our quam ministry. Don't we, Wendy? We got one or two. One or two. And there's not a lot. One or two. And it can be easy to get to the point where you're like, you know what? It's hopeless. We're done. Move on. But a loving person expects and looks for the best in someone. If you look at Luke 23, 
Don't turn there. We're going to have time. But look at, if you look at Luke 23, you'd find a story of Jesus Christ at a pivotal point in his life find the best in someone. The person I'm talking to was a malefactor who was hanging on the cross next to him. And Jesus, in his love, looks on this man and sees the faith and says, Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus didn't look at the faults. He looked at his faith. He didn't look at his failures. He looks at the potential of what could be in the next few moments. Love at its core places the needs of others in front of the needs of itself. He said how contrary to that is, how contrary to the modern ideology is that. So we see love is essential. Love's effective, but lastly and quickly, love is eternal. Look at verse 8. Charity faileth, charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. And whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which in part shall be done away. Love is essential in our motivation. It's effective in helping us live with people. And it's eternal in our existence. You see, there are things that will pass away. Our memories will fail. Our, our physical gifts will decay. Our talents will cease. But love never fails. It's always got a purpose and it will always have a reason to exist. And here in verse 8, Paul makes a clear and undeniable statement. Charity never fails. He then gives a list of those gifts that the Holy Spirit had given, these sign gifts, and shows that the thing that the Corinthians were basing their spirituality and authority on was fragile and fleeting. We've got people in our world that base their entire existence on their their supremacy over someone. But the Bible says here, prophecies, they shall fail. That word, they shall fail, is a Greek word, katargeo. It carries the idea of being done away with, no longer necessary. At that point, it was necessary for prophecies to happen. It was necessary for God to speak to people that way. But Paul is saying, hey, those are going to they're going to go away soon. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. The gift of tongues was key in spreading the gospel to other nations quickly. But even this miraculous gift would cease. That word cease is a Greek verb and it's, it's translated in the middle sense, which means it could be translated as this, to stop by themselves means that one day they're just going to stop. Knowledge, it shall vanish away. The vanish away is the same word that we just saw in the first part of this verse, that katargeo. It's the, the miraculous revelation of knowledge would no longer be necessary. But he goes on in verse 9, For we know in part and we prophesy in part. Paul's talking about him and the other apostles, the other leaders. Hey, we know in part, we just know a little bit, we just know what God's given us, and that's what we're giving to you guys is just a little bit. But when that which is perfect is come. That word but is however. It doesn't stop here. Wait, there's more. That which is perfect. That word that is a it's a neuter word in the Greek, which means it it. It has no gender. It means it's something, it's, it, it's inanimate. When that which is perfect is come. When that which is complete is come. Those temporary fragile gifts are no longer going to be necessary when that which is perfect, what he's talking about is the Bible. 
They didn't have the complete word of God at that point. They had scrolls, they had sections, they had, they had the Old Testament, they didn't have anything in the New Testament. And he's saying, when that which is perfect, when the Bible, when it's complete has come, those things are going to stop. Why would we base our value on something that is temporary? Paul gives a clear presentation that the things that the Corinthians were holding so dear and holding over one another's heads are going to stop. He said that those temporary gifts of the Spirit are going to be unnecessary when the Bible is completed. When God's Word is finished, those things are no longer important. Paul reemphasizes at the end of chapter 12, and yet I show unto you a more excellent way. He's saying, hey, even though these, these things are going to cease, there's something better. Look what he says in verse 11. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. The word child is translated to be a child who doesn't have the full ability to speak yet. They don't have full function yet. Paul was telling the church that you are a young church. He's telling the Corinthians, hey, you're young in the faith. You're young in this, in this world. You understand as a young church and you, you speak as a young church. The Holy Spirit equipped them to do this. But he goes on, but when I was a man, I put away childish things. When that maturity comes, the ability to speak God's word, we will put away those childish things, those things that God provided for us during this time. But when maturity comes, those gifts are going to go away. Paul's demeanor here, it isn't harsh or authoritarian. He tells them they're in the same boat together. He's humble. He's saying, hey, I don't know it all, but when... When this thing that's perfect, when the Bible comes, when it's completed, we'll all see the same way. For now I see through a glass, darkly. I said earlier the Corinthians were famous for their skill with copper. There were coppersmiths that would, that would refine and finish copper so clearly that it was almost like a mirror. But even through that mirror of copper, they still had some distortion. And he said, hey, right now we see through a glass, but I see through a glass darkly. Hey, we don't have the full picture. I can make out a little bit of it. We don't have the full picture yet. But then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as I am known. He encourages the church and says this, even though we can't see yet, one day we'll be face to face with God's word and be able to understand what he has for us just as he knows us. What he's saying is this. The gifts of the Holy Spirit that people value so much are nothing in comparison to the fruit of the Holy Spirit. What God gave the people as miraculous gifts are going to cease, but what God gives us to do, love, hope, faith, they'll last forever. And now abideth, now abideth forever, love, hope, and faith. Faith, hope, and charity says faith is our confidence in who God is and what he can do. Hope is our expectation that God will provide. And charity, agape, this self-sacrificial, Christ-centered love is the greatest of these. Paul makes a statement that rings true today. The fruit of the Spirit are eternal. And that's where our focus should be. If we can get tied up in trying to increase our knowledge and our abilities and our skills when we need to look at the example of Jesus Christ that he sets. John chapter 13 tells the story of 
Jesus washing the disciples' feet, doing an act that a servant would do. No, not a king of kings, not a lord of lords, but a, a servant would wash feet. And he says in John chapter 13 and verse 31, he says this, Therefore, when he was gone out, when Judas was gone out, can we recognize that Jesus washed the feet of the very man that would betray him? Now, therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself, and shall straightway glorify him. Little children, yet as a little while I am with you, ye shall seek me. And as I said unto, Jew, unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say unto you, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye have also loved one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. So what is love? It's effective. It's practical. It's essential. And it's eternal. Frankly, the things you do on this world won't matter, but if you show love to someone, that will matter for eternity. So how are you doing on that today? Father, we thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for bringing us here today. God, as we come to the close of this service, I just have a, one question. Why is love so important? God, your Bible says that you love the world so much that you sent Jesus to die on the cross, but why would we need that? Well, because as we saw today, we're broken. We're battered, but even though we were yet sinners, as the Bible says, even though we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, I pray that people here understand what Lamentation said, that your mercies are new, your compassions fail not, and your faithfulness is good. We love you, Lord. It's your name we pray. As Laura begins to play the song, turn your eyes upon Jesus. I wonder if you need to confess something to God and say, God, I've not been loving in this area. God, I haven't shown my spouse, my child, a coworker the love that they deserve. Today in your seat, you can do that. I wonder if there's someone here who's never experienced the true love of God in the sense of accepting him as your savior. He's willing and able. I ask you to stand, we'll sing one verse of turn your eyes upon Jesus and think about the words who Jesus is to us. Oh soul, are you weary and troubled?
Thank you all for being here today. We'll have you sit down. Those of you who are getting baptized, if you would like to head onto the restrooms and get changed, uh, Nate, could you go up and tell Junior Church that we are done and they can send the kids down? If you have a child in the nursery, um, head on up there and grab them, and we'll get started here in just a second. If the kids would like to come up and sit on the platform, they are more than welcome to, just so they can get a good view of everything. 
Once the mics are figured out, we'll get started. There it goes. All right. So before we get going here, let me just say a couple things. Um, number one, what a privilege um, to, to baptize and to be a part of this. And uh, when it comes to baptism, uh, three things I want you to think about this morning. Number one, baptism does not equal heaven. Uh, baptism doesn't get you into heaven. It doesn't purchase eternal life for you. Um, in Acts chapter 8, uh, Philip is witnessing to the Ethiopian eunuch, and he asks Philip, he says, what hinders me to be baptized? And he said, you have to believe. Salvation, we have to believe on Christ. And so it doesn't equal, it doesn't equal heaven. The second thing I want you to think about is baptism is a declaration. It's declaring that I have been saved. I have believed, and I have accepted Christ as my personal Savior. But then the third thing about baptism is this. It's a decision. Um, baptism is a decision on the part of the believer to follow Christ. It is leaving the old things behind and moving forward and saying, I am, I'm going to follow Jesus. And that's what, that's what this decision is about. Um, we're going to, when, when they get in here, um, I'll say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And I'll say, buried in the likeness of his death raised to walk in newness of life and through baptism is a, is declaring it's showing that decision that i'm leaving everything else behind and i want to follow jesus and so this is just this is a significant step of obedience for you guys in your christian life and i'm just pr i'm just thankful i get to be a part of it but uh we're gonna get started with uh ali so ali you come on up here step on go ahead and get right up in there All right, turn around this way. Yep, sit down. Go ahead and sit down. Allie is part of the Jones family. If you'll take this hand and, and hold your nose. All right. Allie, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? All right, based on your profession, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in newness of life. All right, Pam. little bit of a step down oh, we'll, 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 we'll help you get out come on up here and sit down there Pam you and Kirsten have been coming for a while and it's been a blessing having you guys here if you will plug your nose with yep, yep that works Pam have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior based on your profession I baptize you in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Ghost buried in the likeness of his death Raised to walk in newness of life. All right. Kirsten. Come all the way up here and sit down. Kirsten's been coming. She's been part of the youth group. She went to camp. And she was part of the plague, weren't you? <laughs> All right, if you'll plug your nose with that hand. Yep. Kirsten, have you accepted the Lord as your personal Savior? Based on your profession, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in newness of life. 
that, Abby. We have a lot of kids and teens today, which is awesome. Abby's a Boffman, and they've been a blessing. Where, where are they? Did you guys scoot? Oh, right here. Oh, we're so glad to have you guys. And Abby, you've been a blessing since you've been here. It's my privilege to baptize you. Have you accepted the Lord as your personal Savior? Based on your profession, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in newness of life. Come on, Dylan. <laughs> Where's Dad? Hey, how long do you want me to hold him down? Where are your brothers at? How long do they want me to hold you down? <laughs> Three minutes? Can you hold your breath that long? Man, Dylan, Dylan has been, a, he's just been so much fun to have around. And I hope one day when I grow up, I'm half as smart as he is. But um, Dylan, you are, you're a blessing, buddy. It's always, it's always a joy to have you around. Glad you're here. Plug your nose with this hand. Dylan, have you accepted the Lord Jesus as your personal Savior? Based on your profession, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in newness of life. You want help? <laughs> There's one in the bathroom. All right, Sarah. into here yep let's get down sarah you and uh drew and skyler skyra 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 you guys have been coming for a while and we're glad you guys are a part of our church have you accepted the lord jesus as your personal savior all right if you'll plug your nose with this hand yep i baptize you in the name of the father the son and the holy ghost buried in the likes of his death raised to walk in newness of life amen Dorothy, come on up. Careful. You want to make the noise? Dorothy, we're, we're thankful for you and for this decision today. Have you accepted the Lord Jesus as your personal Savior? Yes. Praise the Lord. If you'll, if you'll hold your nose with that hand, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Buried in the likes of his death, raised to walk in newness of life. Ryan, glad you're here today to make this decision. You and your sister, you guys are always a lively part of everything. Glad you're here. Have you accepted the Lord Jesus as your personal Savior? All right, if you'll plug your nose with this hand, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Buried in the likes of his death, raised to walk in newness of life. talkative scoot all the way up in here as far as you can there you go joey have you accepted the lord as your personal savior 
All right, if you're plugging up with that hand, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in newness of life. <laughs> Amen. Alejandro? Angela? Angela. Look, get all the way up in there, Shirley. Angela's been coming to church for a few weeks now. Spoke to Pastor a few weeks about getting baptized. We're glad he's here as well. Angela, if you'll plug your nose with that hand. Angela, have you accepted the Lord Jesus as your personal Savior? All right, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in newness of life. Amen. Yes, sir. All right, I think... baptized today yep, yep, just up in there yep, scoot all the way up there all right Tanya have you accepted the Lord as your personal Savior amen if you would plug your hold your nose with that hand baptize in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Ghost buried in the likes of his death raised to walk in newness of life Amen. Good, good. Amen. Well, that concludes our baptismal service for today. If, if we could, um, Tyler, would you close us in prayer tonight or this afternoon, sir?